how many of us can't wait to leave home. But then circumstances involving a global pandemic sent us right back to where we began. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time. Joining us today on our episode sponsored by Louisiana Tourism is Olivia Stewart, president of Oxbow Rum Distillery. After a childhood surrounded by sugarcane, she thought her future was in the big city. Now she's helming her family's rum distillery in Louisiana. How did she get there? You'll have to hear it from her. Have you ever been to Louisiana? I love it for its Creole and Cajun culture, Mardi Gras, and the beautiful city of New Orleans. But the Pelican State offers so much more, including the amazing live music scene, covering everything from jazz to swamp pop and zydeco. A fascinating history, combining diverse cultures, over 400 festivals a year, and adventures including kayaking on the bayous and lakes, hiking in the many national and state parks throughout the state, or the newly launched Louisiana Civil Rights Trail. If you didn't know it already, it's the home of the cocktail, not only the Sazerac, and gumbo, jambalaya, Tabasco hot sauce, king cake, and beignets. Louisiana offers a food and drink experience that is second to none. Meet craft distillers, brewers, and mixologists who are working with local traditions and making a name for themselves on the Louisiana Culinary Trails or Louisiana Libations Trail. Now, let's hear all about that journey from New York to Louisiana. Oh, and by the way, you can also find a video of this episode. Just head to youtube.com slash at Lush Life Manual. That's youtube.com slash at Lush Life Manual. Now to Olivia. It's wonderful to have you on the show. I'm so glad you could be here all the way from Louisiana. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. So I, I can't wait to hear all about Oxbow Distillery and your journey there. I always start at the same place where you were born, where you grew up, how you got into the business. So why don't we just start there? Sure. I mean, that actually has a lot of relevance to why I'm doing what I'm doing now. So I was born and raised, well, born in a hospital, but <laughs> raised out on the farm on my family's sugarcane farm, which has been in my family since 1859. And my dad, it's been run by my family and my ancestors ever since. And then my Today, my dad runs it. And so I grew up out there running through the fields, just seeing him stress out every harvest and things weren't always as good as they are now. So seeing as a child, the year I was born, we were the dead last mill in the state, sugar mill. And now actually last year we were number one. So being able to see that over the course of my lifetime and see my dad do that has, has had such a profound impact on me as a person, but by no means was it in my plans, you know, on like wait, what wait. I wanted to do with my life at all. Well, ho- wait, yeah. wait, hold on, hold on. We're going to unpack some of that a little bit. You said you were born on the farm. It's in Point Capi Parish, which is outside of Baton Rouge. And it's known for an oxbow lake that it has called False River because it's not a river. Actually, it's known for its super, super rich, fertile soil. 
because that Mississippi River would just change course and wind and deposit all this sediment. So there's all this sugar cane there because it's so fertile. So that's what I grew up around. You said your dad had the sugar cane farm. Tell me what it was like. I mean, what, what kind of, sh- I'm sorry to be ignorant about sugar cane, but is there only one kind of sugar cane? What kind of sugar was he producing in the, the farm? And what was it being used for? Sure. So sure, there's plenty of varieties, new modern varieties that have been researched. Non-GMO, nothing is GMO. It's not allowed in the U.S. It's just natural breeding to find the right varieties. There's thousands. And for about a decade, every decade, there's like the main one. It's not like it looks very different, slight changes, but it's really all about your sucrose content, your freeze hardiness and disease resistance. We have 2,500 acres on Alma. That's the name of the farm. And we also have the mill. So there's only 11 mills left in the state. And we're the only mill with its own fields, cultivating its own fields. Yeah. So that's kind of how we're able to have this single estate status here at the distillery, because we do own the fields and the mill and the distillery, and no one else in the state does. So you grew up you grew up around the sugar. And as you were or as I was inferring, you kind of wanted to get the hell out of Dodge and not not be part of this. Yeah. In your later year. So tell me what happened in between. Yeah. So, you know, I had a great time growing up around sugarcane. I didn't really realize it was something different and unusual until like, you know, probably middle school or something. And I would drive in every day to Baton Rouge, which is about 20 miles away and go to primary and secondary school. And I realized, you know, about halfway through what we call high school, I just wanted to get out, you know? And it also, my dad had three daughters and I grew up with the mindset that like, well, of course I'm not going to take it over. I'm a woman, you know, like this is agriculture. This is farming. I've never seen a woman in that field here, down here in Louisiana. So it wasn't even people... I remember people used to ask me that and I'd be like, no, I'm not, I'm not taking that over. It's not it's not an option. So it just hadn't it never even crossed my mind. And I knew I wanted to get out of Baton Rouge. I went to boarding school and I took this AP art history class and it, it I was just like, oh, it's what I want to do. I want to be art dealer or gallerist and live this glamorous life. So as you know, that's the major I declared in college and I stuck with it. I went to, I got my master's at Sotheby's in London for art business. Since graduating high school, I was pursuing this career, whether through internships or or the master's. And then I finally ended up settling in New York, downtown New York, and worked for an assortment of galleries. I worked for an art consultant. I mean, that was, it was NY till I die. You know, it was <laughs> like, I'm going to be a big, boss art gallerist one day and that's it and then COVID hit oh boy (laughs) so really recently yeah when COVID hit we were like oh let's move down and and just ride this thing out for a few weeks where it's warmer and in the country and I had never you know I'd bartended in New Orleans for like nicer mixologist type places so I had an understanding of spirits and a palate for it, but never worked in this industry, distilling, et cetera. And, and it 
was just not a consideration until COVID hit and I moved back down. And I saw my dad needed help. Was your dad making rum at that point or still just sugar? So that transition, my dad's always just been 100% sugar. I mean, that has all since 1859, when my family first got into it, it's always been about sugar. That's the number one product. Molasses is just the byproduct. And so the mill would just sell that on the commodity market, animal feed, things of that nature. In 2016, a cousin of mine decided to open the distillery. And so that Alma, like, you know, helped invest in it, obviously, and would promise the feedstock, you know, and agricultural cane juice rum was definitely like, oh my gosh, we can do this. We'd be like one of the first in America. It was very exciting. But, you know, as often happens, it was underestimated how much opening a distillery costs and definitely hit some bumps in the road. And my cousin took a step back from everything and things essentially got all everything got handed over to my dad to run. And, you know, this is not his thing. He didn't even drink rum before this. <laughs> I was going to ask about that. You know, he he turned around the mill. Like, he spent his entire adult life doing that. 40 years. That was in 2019, end of 18, early 19. So then a year later, just about, is when I came in picture after a really tough year. Now, was it... Was it called Oxbow then? And were you selling no, anything? So, were you making anything yet? Yes. We we started selling and making in 17. So okay. it was under the brand Caneland. That's what my cousin decided to call it. And then we ran into some trademark issues with that name. Apparently, there's a Dutch company making rum in the Caribbean under the name Cane Island. And that was oh. just too close for comfort. So we decided to just wash our hands of that. And we renamed Three Roll Estate. And that was, you can kind of look at it as like Caneland was under my cousin, Three Roll was under my dad, and Oxbow was under me. And so we'd gone through all these changes. And definitely, even before COVID, you know, I am very candid with people about this. Like, we were kind of already on our knees, you know? And, and COVID just knocked us while we were already down. And it must have um, been so tough. Yeah, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. Before we get to you coming down and taking control, you said your dad didn't even drink rum. Now, now, you're you were producing rum. Uh, was it we as we say here, a busman's holiday? Like your dad is like, okay, enough sugar. Give me an agave spirit. Give me something made not from rum. You know. No, he was just always a classic Southern gentleman drinking his bourbon, bourbon, but only on like football Saturdays, you know, uh-huh. and, you know, just rum was never his drink of choice. But and it's interesting because that kind of reflects all of Louisiana's mentality, even though we're the top sugar producing state now in the country. People are kind of just finding out about rum, but that it can be elevated and elegant and sit and appreciated. So it's interesting, but safe to say now my dad is a convert. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. So COVID hit, you were doing your art thing. You're like, I'm going to live in New York till you die. This is going to be it. COVID hit, you came down for a couple of weeks. Boom. We're in lockdown for like like three years. (laughs) When you got down, had you realized really how bad it was financially and then thought, okay, I... You know, let me going to use my training and I'm going to 
I'm going to do this no matter what. I mean, tell me about that transition and how you even educated yourself to become what you are now. (sighs) That is just called fight or flight, (laughs) but I'll get to that. So we came down, I I was furloughed and I started listening in on all of his phone conversations and Zoom calls. And obviously I have, I had opinions on what was going on. I'm like, that's not right. That's not how you do that. You know, it's not how you market a brand. You know what they say? You can take the girl out of New York. You can't take New York out of the girl. (laughs) That's exactly right. I really like just bullnose my way into it, move over, like, let me do this. But I mean, gradually, you know, I just, I helped here and there. I would join calls just to help my dad keep track of everything. You know, he's, he's seventies and, you know, I just wanted to help kind of be a secretary of sorts and just help uh-huh. him keep track of these things. We were obviously shut down. So they were trying to, the big thing then was pushing the sanitizer. And so I would just drive around Baton Rouge with sanitizer bottles in my car and I would just walk into places like here's a sample like if you want more here's the pricing and just driving around and that's really how it started and then probably about a month into it doing that you know I came down with my then fiance now husband he's from down here though we met down here so it wasn't like a culture shock at all to him (laughs) and we just started talking like what if what if we just didn't go back you know what if we just did this he was like Let's do it. I'm ready. But I, my big hesitation was the fact that I had spent the last 10 plus years working toward this career that I had built. And I really, I climbed the ladder and made it pretty far. And, but, you know, we just, we took the leap and I couldn't have done it without him. I wouldn't have done it without him. You know, when it kind of, when I kind of just forgot about all that noise and like, what, what will like my art world colleagues think and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, okay. if I shut that out and just think about what's really important, it's my family, right? And helping this family business and giving it, you know, one last shot, maybe. Uh, and maybe I'm the one to do that. I don't, you know, of course I did not believe in myself then, but I'm just like, okay, hello let's go, you know, and it was a very hard year, very, very hard year. And I had many moments of self-doubt, many, many, like what felt like rock bottoms, can't do it, throwing in the towel, probably until the following February. And that's when I finally was like, I can't do it. You know, it's just lockdown after lock after lockdown and, and, and building upon debt. And just, it just seemed, it felt hopeless and you know it was kind of a serendipitous moment shortly after that right before we were about to send a letter out to shareholders saying like Alma's been bankrolling this there's other investors here and we're not going to do it anymore like y'all pony up kind of deal it was literally we had the final draft written and I'll never forget I was here in the back and I stepped outside into the parking lot to make one last call Like, okay, there's this guy, maybe he'll have an answer or an idea or anything, you know, because he was all, he was a consultant we'd worked with and he was always like such a big champion of ours, you know? And I called him and he said, I have an idea. And that was our second wind, if you will, or third or fourth or fifth. (laughs) 
But it was kind of from there, they made, he made an introduction who would become our, our new partners and investors who not just brought capital to the table, but experience, decades of experience in the industry. And it all happened, you know, I mean, it took a while to close, but the courtship began within a, a month after that phone call. Now, when you went into that meeting with them or you were trying, had you become Oxbow yet? Were you producing any liquid or this was all before that? Yes. Yeah, so we never stopped producing okay. liquid ever since 2016. So it just would be produced, you know, we'd have different iterations and different brand names, but we were always producing liquid. Now, were we selling it during the lockdown? That's uh -huh. different story. Once things started opening up again in 2021 and the distributors started paying attention to us, accounts started picking us up more and more because they were opening up and the tide turned. You know, it's kind of crazy looking back on it because it just went from, okay, we got to give up and praying uh -huh. even, you know, resorting to strategies I normally wouldn't have before <laughs> then. <laughs> to make it through to things totally turning around and and us having hope. And so the new partners are when the rebrand from Three Roll to Oxbow happened once we closed on that deal. When they came in, did you have to change a lot of the rum itself or did you keep making the same rum, that first rum, when it relaunched as Oxbow? Well, I will say Revel, my my husband and I, like we refined the recipes when we got okay. on board and learned everything. I mean, we literally were just learning on the fly, had a great distiller prior who moved away, but he trained Revel very quickly. And then Revel went on to win like best in class awards after like six months of distilling. Ridiculous. And so we had refined the recipes or the processes rather, not so much the recipes and that like with distilling cuts and everything like that. And then when we switched from three-year-old to Oxbow, we did, we dropped some of the portfolio, increased the proofs, but overall kept the recipe the same, like as in the type of yeast we use and the feedstock. Always have used high-grade molasses uh, and then cane juice for our, our agricole mm -hmm. style. Uh, it's just a matter of, of learning more and refining the processes that greatly influenced the final product. I have the four bottles behind me, but what were you making at that time? Under three roll, we had like eight to 10 skews. Oh, a lot. We had not just an agricultural style, but a Brazilian style, chassa right. style. We had white rum, dark rum, red stick, a cinnamon liqueur style rum, and then some like tasting room exclusive skews as well. Mm -hmm. So I knew even it was a little bit too much and all over the place, you know, and I mean, even in the early, oh. early days, they were making vodka and we're looking at a gin and and look, that works for some distilleries, you know, making a little bit of everything. But given what we come from and the cane farm, like, let's just do rum and do it well and be the best at it. That's the route. That's the direction we're going with Oxbow. And we refined and pared down. And how long did it take from them coming on board, your partners, to you feeling, I think we got this. I think it's this is now going to work and we're not going to have to close. But also this could potentially be, be successful. 
the first meeting oh. when I first got introduced to him. Uh, like it fabulous. was that, it was that transformative. And I, I even just met one representative of them and uh, just hearing about like what they were looking for, because it's a very particular company. I mean, it's brand new, but what they're called Stockwell Reserve. And president, you know, and co-founder worked for Buffalo Trace for 20 years and helped develop brands like Weller and, and Wheatley and, you know, the big ones. And he had partnered up with someone who was interested in Spirits World, obviously, and investing in these great craft distilleries who don't necessarily have the capital to succeed, but had great juice, great story, authentic people. Like that's literally, those were the, the boxes. And I'm huh. like, tick, 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 tick. tick. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> and they felt the same way. I mean, it was very, the partnership, the ties felt very, very strong from that first meeting. Mm-hmm. And that felt like, okay, we got a shot, you know, and deals take a long time. It was a year and a half until the ink was dry, but we it was a strong courtship, if you will. Okay. So Oxbow, you decide on the name Oxbow and you start producing under that name. And also we have the False River, which we'll talk about in a sec. Mm-hmm. So did, were you doing all of these? You were doing your white, the small batch and the dark and the spiced at that time? Yeah. Under three-year-old, just not called, you know, we weren't using the the language small batch and and uh-huh. barely straight rum and us and the partners like during the strategic planning and, and branding brand strategy planning we both kind of came to the consensus at the same time like what we need is is a rum brand for like a bourbon style rum brand you know okay. like you look around bourbon is what's selling it's number one like i don't know for in america you know i mean it's, it's just there's no contest and so it's like, okay, rather than try and fight that and like go the typical route that you see of rum that is, you know, like crossbones and skulls and treasure and pirates, <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's like kind of flip this on its head, like the category on its head. So we started thinking about it that way and hence using rebranding, raising the proofs. That's a, that was a big one right. across the board. So we no longer even do a 80 proof product. And then using these descriptors like small batch, barrel aged straight rum, and then of course like the bottle and the the labeling and the branding, um, just very elegant. No pirates, <laughs> no pirates, and also representing Louisiana here with your rum, Louisiana. Yeah, of course, Martinique are, are the original creators of Agricole, right? And they have an AOC on it that is recognized over on that side of the pond and in the Caribbean, however, not in the U.S. So we are able to put agricole on the label, and we had been doing that. However, say one day that AOC does get recognized here, regardless of that, what we're making is not like an agricole, like a Martinique agricole. You know, Martinique agricole is made from sugarcane grown on volcanic rocky soil in a climate that has constant salty sea breeze. And you can taste that in agricultural, you know, there's that salinity and minerality and, and it's special in its own right. But what we're doing 
is the cane juice rum from sugar cane that is grown in rich, super rich, super fertile Delta soil. Some of the most fertile in the country. And of course, in a humid climate, and you taste that like rich, buttery, silty kind of rounded smoothness when you taste this. It's totally different than a Martinique Agrable or a, you know, Hawaiian style or a cachaça or anywhere else in the world. And you, it's the, you taste the terroir. So we want to call it something different. <laughs> yes. And that, that terroir is in Louisiana. So why not call yes. it? Yes call it where it's from. So let's talk about the others, this, the small batch, the white rum and the aged, the small batch we'll do first. So it's, it's 90 proof or um, 45 ABV. When you were refining the, the processes for this, can you tell us what you decided to stay with and what got left behind sure. to have your final yeah. product for this one yeah. and then we'll go on to the barrel aged one? Yeah. With the small batch white rum, and, you know, I think what re really makes it special is obviously our raw ingredients as a single estate. But so same yeast, but just we researched more about fermentation health. That is so crucial. Uh, it's not just about the distilling by any means. Fermentation health is so crucial. So we worked really closely with our yeast vendors, learned more about that. And then, of course, with our distillation cuts and rectification and um in that process you know just getting more tighter with the cuts if you will uh, -huh. uh and then post distillation we learned at a conference about slow proofing and how when water mingles with alcohol those molecules if you do it too fast actually the rebel and i learned this on our honeymoon in martinique <laughs> visiting a rum distillery. They were amazing. We learned this at JM. If you do it too fast, the molecules just fight each other. There's just too much separation and flavor. And up until that point, we were just, nip, nip, you know, water, yeah. alcohol, range of proof, boom, bottle. But now we do like over the course of at least 30 days, if not more, bringing it from the distillation proof, the composite proof coming off the still, which is about like 160, 170. Uh -huh. And then gradually bringing it down okay. tonight. Super interesting. Yeah, it's really yeah. interesting. When you do side-by-sides of the same product, one slow-proof and one not, night and day. Night and day. Especially with the rum Louisiana, the cane juice rum, because that is so delicate. And another thing, kind of going back to rum Louisiana, what we changed from before, that goes all the way to the height we're cutting the cane at. You know, and how we're Under treating wing. the cane. Yeah. And, and that, honestly, how we're prepping the cane before crushing or, you know, kind of lack of prep, like washing, et cetera. That is, was the biggest difference in the change for Rum Louisiana because we were keeping that soil and, uh, you know, to a degree, we weren't to a certain degree, you know, to get the, still get that terroir. Uh, but yeah, when we empty the fermenters, you've got like a layer of mud at the bottom. Oh, no way. That's so cool. I yeah. don't think I've, I've never had anyone talk about either process on the show. Yeah. And I didn't know any of this before 2020. So let's get to the barrel aged. I'm assuming, which is so bad to do, that it starts off like this and then it goes into a barrel. 
We use a different yeast. Uh, but yes, essentially same process, except on those distillation cuts, we run really deep into the tails okay. at the end. And that's like the real funky flavors you're going to get. For instance, with vodka, you're not going to keep any of those. But for like a mezcal or something, you want the funk. So we run deeper into the tails to get more funk because that stands up to the barrel better. So we will also pr- gradually proof down. We'll go into the barrel at like 130 proof. And then we put into first use new charred American oak barrels. And new oak is very, you don't see that very often in rum aging. No. You see a lot of like ex-bourbon, ex-sherry, right. ex-port. So people think I'm crazy, but <laughs> <laughs> I think our unaged, unfiltered white rum That's a- is delicious out of the still. So why would I want it to taste like something else after aging? Now, was this also the idea of, you know, thinking like a bourbon, as you were saying? You know, yes. okay. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Great point. So if you notice on the label, you know, barrel age is very large. And then we have the descriptor straight rum. Oh, yeah. There is no it such, there's no like official definition or federally recognized story of straight rum. They toyed with it back in the 30s, actually. And so we were in an effort to be more like bourbon, which was also more popular in the 30s. And so we kind of pulled a, a a play from that that playbook. And that's what we're doing here. So we're following straight bourbon rules. First use charred American oak for a minimum of two years. And last but not least, we have now False River Spice Rum. So tell me about False River and how that's different or like Oxbow. Sure. So... Oxbow's identity is all about transparency, no additives, no sweetener, no coloring, which is very commonplace in rum. Yeah. I think that kind of has set rum back in a lot of ways. So with False River, that's our spice rum brand. Spice rum inherently has sweetener, additives, flavoring, et cetera. That is what defines spice rum. So we made it a different brand name. Under the same umbrella of Oxbow Rum Distillery, of course. So what we're doing there is we take our small batch white rum. We infuse with bay leaf or as y'all would say, I think laurel and whole vanilla bean for three days. And then we blend with our baking spice and orange flavoring. And then I I scale back on the sweetness by like half compared to our former brand, three rolls spice rum. So what you get is a spice rum that I would drink (laughs) because they were always too sweet and like syrupy for me. And then something like much more balanced. There's a lot more going on. It's not just one note. You get the herbal from the bay leaf going on, but it's not like, oh, that's bay leaf. You know, it's just kind of like, oh, what is that? And then Obviously, the vanilla is very strong. And then on the back, you get your orange, your baking spice, clove, even like a hint of cinnamon. So a lot going on. It's fun. It it is delicious. Yes, it is so delicious. So you are now, knock on wood, doing very well. You know, how how long did it take till, you know, you knew that this was going to be fabulous? Do you feel like you've gotten to the point where... 
you are set with these and you want to start doing something else and adding a, a few more SKUs? Yes. So again, kind of a nod to the bourbon world with limited editions and seasonal releases and different, you know, I, I'm definitely like willing to play with different barrel types as like a thing. So definitely keep an eye out for that. We'll be launching soon with a couple more SKUs. And also your distillery. You can come visit. How long did that, did that take to set up? There were tours being done before I came on board, but not to the level that me and my team kind of worked out now. You know, it, like I knew I wanted something more interactive. So if you come here to the Tasty Room and Distillery, downtown Baton Rouge, and then we have a little tabletop three-roll cane crushing mill. Uh, so during harvest season, when our cane out front gets tall enough, our little patch of cane, we'll cut it and run it through the mill and let, and then you can taste fresh pressed cane juice. And then we'll take you through the back and follow the exact process and in the order that our ingredients come in and fermentation. And then we'll go through distillation and then the barrel room where you can actually taste from a barrel. Uh -huh. taste straight from the barrel and then finish it off back here in the tasting room uh, where we do a full tasting of our lineup, our course views and our beautiful Glencairn Oxbow glasses, tasting glasses, which are also for sale. <laughs> now, you know, I this is quite a personal question, but do you feel New York art world calling you back or are you pretty entrenched and do you fallen in love with the rum world? I have absolutely zero regrets. And I can't, I actually can't even imagine who I would be or, or where, you know, as a person, if I hadn't have done this. Uh, yes. And I'm sure your father and your family must be so thrilled that you've, you've come back into the fold and into the, into the sugar and created they would have never thought in a million years that would happen or probably like I could have done this. So prove it to myself and them. <laughs> now, absolutely. Now, we always finish off with a top tip for the home bartender. So it could be a rum tip or any other kind of tip. Do you have something for someone who might be drinking one of your liquids? Don't overthink it, you know, and feel like you have to use all these crazy ingredients. If you just think about how to balance a cocktail very simply, you can make almost anything. So whether it's refreshing and shaken, you just need a perfect balance of fruit and sugar and the spirit and you're good. And then with a stirred and boozy cocktail, just think bitters, a little bit of sweetener and your spirit. Ice, ice cold. All right. I love that. And last, that, absolutely. Last but not least, if you could be anywhere drinking anything, where would that be? And what would it be? I've gotten this question before. And I always say drinking at home in the cane fields that from Louisiana, where it was made and grown. Well, that's wonderful. I always feel that you really get someone's you know, personal love. And I, I do love that question. Yeah. Second would be on the beach in Martinique, also drinking cane juice rum. <laughs> okay. All right. No pina yeah. colada for you. Cane juice rum. 
No. Well, listen, thank you so much for spending the time with me. I really loved hearing about Oxbow. I wish I could come down to Louisiana and see it for myself right this minute. Maybe one day. Yes, exactly. My next trip to Louisiana. Absolutely. And um, it was great to hear about your rum. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the time. So nice speaking with you. Absolutely. Awesome. It was great to have Olivia on the program. And did you know that as the capital city of Louisiana, Baton Rouge is the heart and soul of the state's eclectic culture. With over 300 years of history, Baton Rouge, affectionately known as the Red Stick, has a colorful story to tell, which can be tasted in its cocktails and restaurants, seen through the picturesque views of the Mississippi River, historical landmarks, and the vibrant arts and culture scene. Don't forget to head to the Oxbow Distillery the next time you're there. Which brings us right to our cocktail of the week. Our cocktail of the week is the Oxbow Distillery's own hand-slung daiquiri. Add the following to a cocktail shaker. Two ounces of Oxbow rum, Louisiane. Three quarters of an ounce of lime juice and half an ounce of sugar syrup. Add ice and then shake, shake, shake. Then strain into a coupe glass. You'll find this recipe, more Louisiana cocktails, and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll also find some of the ingredients in our shop. Louisiana is like no other state, a movie setting at every twist and turn. Picture-perfect scenery, captivating architecture, museums and art galleries depicting a rich history as well as a vibrant contemporary scene, historic river parishes and courtyards for dining or cocktails, boutiques and stores for endless tax-free shopping. I can't wait to return. Make sure you head to louisianatravel.com to find out more. So if you live for Lush Life, make sure you head out to the bars and restaurants you love and tell them how much you love them. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leads me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly. Next time, we discuss sustainability with some of the best bars in the world. Until then, bottoms up.